VI Shots Podcast, Episode 23. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the VI Shots Podcast. My name is Michael Ibeliotis, and this is the podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Well, hello, hello again from uh, the VI Shots podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, Joe Silva on the show, which will be talking about uh, his presentation he did at the CLA Summit this year and some other cool things about the user interface design and user experience uh, in LabVIEW. But first of all, uh, before we get to that, I want to tell you about uh, another podcast I'm hosting. Uh, it's called the NI Week Con Conference Podcast, and it's in a collaboration with National Instruments, and it's all about NI Week. There's uh, already one episode out, actually two episodes out, and you can get more information at ni.com slash niweekcommunity. If you are going to attend NI Week or planning on attending or actually not even sure if you're going to attend, uh, take a listen to that podcast series and uh, we go into detail about uh, what to expect at NI Week. We, do, we interview some of the uh, presenters and we go through some of the uh, exhibition floor highlights and what, what you expect to see at NI Week. And we also give you some tips as to uh, how to get the uh, the best rates at hotels and also what to do in Austin uh, on your downtime. So another podcast series uh, uh, that I'm hosting, NIWeek NI Conference Podcast. Again, you can go to ni.com slash Community. But today we have uh, Joe Silva. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Joe, I forgot to ask you what your title is actually at, at NI. Oh, my title. Well, we're... Um... <laughs> Titles are a funny thing. I think my official title is uh, I'm the creative manager, but my functional role is I'm the creative director for the company. I manage uh, National Instruments. We have in-house marketing. We do everything in-house around the world. And I run the internal creative agency for the company. And we serve all of our branches worldwide. Um, so do you get uh, involved with uh, some of the uh, software interface design? Because I know... Um, when you did a presentation this past March at uh, the CLA Summit, you discussed about how you helped NI with some of the UI redesign on one of their uh, applications. My, um, <clears throat> for the longest team, my team was the only creative resources at National Instruments. So since uh, the R&D team has hired, uh, I think they now have user experience designers and visual designers. But prior to that, um, it was really me and my team helping out with the user interface design for a lot of the different software bits. It wasn't in a, an official capacity. It was more of they would come to us looking for help. And because of the experience that we have in web design and user interface on the web, it translates very nicely into software design. So it was sort of an unofficial helping, but um, we still, we work with the teams over there. We're trying to build a little bit more, you know, integration, but um, not as much today as, you know, a few years ago. But we are, <clears throat> my team does do all the user interface design for NI.com. A lot of the VI Shots audience are uh, LabVIEW 
programmers, a lot of you developers, and right. they, mm -hmm. they, they do everything. <laughs> they, um, they do the user interface design, they actually code, uh, they do the software development, they, um, they work with the hardware, make sure it's interfacing with the hardware, so they kind of do any, like, top to bottom, sort of the overall experience. Um, the one thing that you kind of presented at the, at the, in your presentation was, um, you know, you need to think about user interface, the user interface experience and design as, as a, as something that needs to be done, uh, possibly as a separate task or maybe by a separate person. And as you're describing it and I, there's a whole group of people that do that. So it, you know, there's a good parallel on the web. Um, I've been in, I've been heavily involved in web design since the '90s when it was in its infancy. I worked with a man named uh, David Siegel, who was sort of a polarizing lightning rod in web design. He wrote some of the defining books on web design at the time, and in those early days, the designers did everything because there were. They were print designers who were trying to figure out how to do web design, and they had to do it all. They had to do the web design. They had to do the coding. They had to learn HTML. CSS really wasn't around then, but they became jack-of-all-trades. And as the web started evolving, so did the specialties. Now you had developers who were purely doing the back-end development. You had visual designers who were really focusing on the visual elements of the interface, and now you have these specialties growing out of that of user interface and then user experience. So it really is becoming, you know, those areas are becoming specialties in and of themselves. And in a smaller shop, it makes sense that somebody has to do it all. You don't have the budget to hire, you know, a team of five people to work on one project. So <clears throat> being as well-rounded as you can and well-versed in the different disciplines, understanding the difference, and as an individual trying to figure out, well, how do I... And if you're primary a developer and coder, then how do you interject some of that design sensibility into it? Or vice versa, if you're the designer, the user experience person, how do you then figure out how to do the coding on the back end? Um, ideally, as we get larger and as systems get more complex, we would have individuals specializing and focusing on those key components for the small shops and I know that a lot of the uh, I know a lot of the customers and a lot of the people that are listening to your blog are probably on the smaller side it's still not out of reach for them to freelance some of this work out to find a user interface expert that they can contract and consult in limited capacity you know even if they present with them here's my wireframe interface that I'm thinking of building and just pay for an hour or two of a user interface designer's consultation to look it over and give them feedback. You know, just that much interjection can really help with a project. Another, I guess, suggestion I could make is that uh, someone can have, I mean, uh, a company can have one person, they might have a graphic designer or uh, someone that uh, they use perhaps on their website. But, you know, I mean, perhaps the website interface might be slightly different than, you know, a software interface, but they have the capabilities of doing uh, good graphics. And then um, they can be pulled into maybe a LabVIEW project to do sort of the, the button graphics or some of the UI elements. Exactly. And that's kind of how we started here, is that the R&D te teams, the engineers, they didn't have designers available to them in the R&D department. And so they looked to my organization where we had that expertise on the web, web designers. 
web designers are doing user interface design every day and those skills do translate. So if they have web designers available to them, pulling them into those projects would be a great benefit overall to the project. And it's an easy way to start with the resources that you have at hand. And the way that we did with the R&D teams here is we slowly started showing the need to have dedicated design resources working with the R&D teams to build the software interfaces. So however they can get those design resources to help them out to make the projects better, you know, that can start building a validation use case to go and hire dedicated resources for that. There's a concept of UI user interface and user experience. Can you describe the difference between the two? So the user experience is, it's more of, and this is, this really, you know, for a lot of the engineers, this really gets too touchy-feely, but the user experience is, how do people feel while they're interacting with your product or your company or your website? User interfaces, those are the elements that people use to interact with your product. You know, so those are the tangible things that they are, the buttons they're clicking on, the um, you know, the knobs that they're turning or whatnot. The user experience is, was it a pleasant experience? Was, were they frustrated throughout the experience? Were, was it easy for them to understand and then interact with those user interface components? You know, I use the analogy, and this is something that is, you know, out there on the web, the analogy of a bowl of cereal. You know, the product would be all of the individual elements. It would be all the individual Cheerios and raisins and a spoon and a bowl and your pitcher of milk, the uh, user experience is you sitting down with that assembled bowl of cereal and eating it. You know, that is the experience. The user interface is the spoon. The spoon is what helps you interact with that bowl of cereal. You know, the experience is, did you like it? Did you enjoy the cereal? So I, I think that's, that's it in its simplest form, I think. And if you try to use a knife, then you'll have a problem. And if you try to use a knife, that is going to be a bad user experience. And, <laughs> right. Uh, there, there are some uh, some tips. I guess you can call them tips or kind of principles that um, that you can apply uh, to the user experience and user uh, user interface design. And uh, one of them is uh, affordance. Yes, it's actually one of my favorite ones, uh, affordance, and that's the uh, the concept that <clears throat> a, a device or an element an object is going to influence its function. Uh, the, the most frequently used example for that is a door handle. How many times do you walk up to a door and there's a handle on it and, you, and a handle tells you what? It tells you to pull, right? You walk up to a door and there's a handle and you start pulling on it only to find out that that door is actually a push. So that is the concept of affordance, is what is that thing and how is it telling you to use it, you know, like a door handle. Um, this ties directly into the whole concept of uh, skeuomorphism as well, and as well, and a lot of the redesign that's going on, a lot of the discussion going on about iOS 7 and Windows and whatnot. The argument that um, why Apple started, and for those that don't know, skeuomorphism, it's essentially taking a real object and rendering it, you know, um, rendering it in an, using your, designing your interface to look like real everyday objects like um, a three-dimensional button, you know, in a touchscreen environment. It doesn't really need to be three-dimensional, but 
when they started with touchscreen interfaces, nobody would know what to do with it unless that element looked like a physical three-dimensional button that you could actually push. And so the design of it gave it the affordance. It gave it it ga- it gave it a hint to the user of what to do with it and how to use it. You know, so it needed to look three-dimensional. It needed to look like something that you could physically push and that it would react to your pushing it so that people could understand how to use a touch interface. Yeah, and in LabVIEW, we have a lot of that uh, because exactly. uh, the user interface <clears throat> element, uh, the, our palette, uh, has the buttons, has the switches, has the knobs and the sliders and all that. And a lot of the times our customers are interacting with hardware or instruments that kind of have the similar <laughs> buttons on them. Exactly. So and we, and skew, yeah. Yeah, skeuomorphism plays a, an important role, especially in the industrial world, right? Because I, I remember my father, he was a, a control operator at DuPont many years ago. And his experience was turning physical knobs, turning physical levers, you know, manually controlling a, a plant that, what did they do? They put lead into gasoline at the time. And the, um, the company came in and retrofitted the entire control operation with a touch panel display. And for somebody, you know, like my father, who'd been in that sort of industrial setting all his life, you put a touch panel display in front of him, and if you don't employ skeuomorphism and show him elements that he's visually familiar with, and he visually gets the concept of, oh, I push that button, even though he's not really pushing a button, it helps them to learn the behavior, and it, and it is an easy transition from the re- real world into the digital world. And much like uh, a lot of the customers that um, the CLAs are designing front panels and user interfaces for. These are people probably in industrial settings that when the panel looks like something they are used to, you know, if it, or even if it mimics a uh, Tektronix scope, if it looks like something they are used to and they understand immediately, it helps them make that transition. Another uh, useful principle that, uh, that I use a lot is chunking. And chunking is basically where you're grouping elements together, correct? Exactly. Chunking is not a city in China. <laughs> it is uh, it, really, it, it's just putting like information together, you know, um, or breaking up information into smaller chunks so that it's easier for people to visually comprehend. So one example I use is of a phone number. We chunk our phone numbers differently than Europe does, say. <clears throat> you know, we, we have our... Uh, country code or whatever, it's the one. And then we have our area code, 512. And then we have our three-digit prefix, 683. And then the four digits after that, 5727. That's how we chunk up a phone number. In Europe, they break it down into maybe chunks of threes or chunks of fours. But that's how they, it helps them memorize numbers because of the way they chunk them together. In user interface design, you would want to chunk like functions together so that if I'm, say I'm using Microsoft Word and I'm working with my fonts, I want all font controls, uh, the font size, the superscript, the subscript, underlining, bolding, and all of that. Chunking just means putting them all together so that when you're working with that one element, every variable, every control for that particular element is all chunked together in a nice easy to access place right um, um, some of us use uh you know decorations and frames but or you could use space i guess as well 
Exactly. Just as long as they, it, it's in a logical, just in a logical progression, a logical chunking. Um, we see this a lot in um, television remotes. Some of them are very well designed and some of them are horrible. Yeah. I've seen universal remotes where I have to scan the entire thing up and down and sideways mul- multiple times to figure out how do I change a channel? How do I turn the volume on? Because they're not, they're not logically put together of the way that a user would expect them to be put together. And the good news is for a lot of um, a lot of the LabVIEW architects that are building interfaces, they don't have to they don't have to make this stuff up from scratch. There are so many examples of good user interfaces out there today and so many examples of interfaces that consumers are using on a day-to-day basis. That it's just it's easy to borrow sort of those chunking patterns that already exist. I mean, it's sort of like when um, web developers started coding; they didn't have to code from scratch. There were so many good examples of code out there on the internet that you could just go to a website, see what you liked, and borrow the code, and it was perfectly acceptable practice. And the same is true in a lot of interface design. There are really great user interfaces out there, and all we have to do is find. What is the problem that I'm trying to solve with the user interface? And has somebody already solved that problem? And can I borrow their solution? Uh, I don't think it's, it's the same as you know, copyright infringement or stealing art ideas, because a lot of these are just convections that work and that you'll see repeated over and over and over again. And so starting with what is and what's out there is really a great place mm-hmm. to begin. When I first started into software, I basically just... I, I, the simplest uh, act was hard for me to figure out, you know, how do I present this? For example, a dialogue box. Back when dialogue boxes were very popular. You present a dialogue and an okay and I cancel. A simple decision of, okay, what side does the okay button go on? Does it go on the right, right side or the left side? And right. does, it, does it matter? Uh, does it make a difference? Uh, how do you label them? You know, what do you put on the labels of the, of the dialogue button? Something as simple as that uh, was challenging because... Uh, I didn't have, I didn't know what to do. I had to sort of think about it. And then I, so then I, uh, I came up with, well, what's out there that already works? Uh, what right. does Microsoft do? When you say, when you apply a setting, how does the dialogue look like? What do they ask you? Is it a question? You know, that type of thing. And then of course I discovered the books where they have, you know, the Microsoft design guidelines and, and all that stuff, which basically lays out, well, you have to have this, this is what you ask, ask the user and this is how you ask it and so on and so forth. Exactly. Um, so <clears throat> you start from those, and again, applications that millions of people use, Microsoft Office, some people can argue <laughs> one way or the other that it's a good or bad application, but it's used by millions of people, and they're accustomed to a certain way of a certain behavior. And, you know, the, your, a good bet is that, you know, if you do something that is already uh, familiar to people, then your software won't look foreign to them. It'll, exactly. it'll, it'll fit in with what they're used to, what their environment is used to. Of course, it, that maybe not translates well to the Apple platform, but um, if you're dealing with Microsoft Windows customers, then that might be okay for them. Exactly. And that, that gets into the whole realm of usability. And I know we didn't, we didn't discuss that at the CLA presentation, but you know, usability is good and bad. Usability testing because um, I used to work, you know, back in the um, dot-com boom days, we worked with a company that was very scientific in their usability testing. But what they didn't account for was the human factor of what's already out there and what are people being trained on. 
think about the QWERTY keyboard. There have been lots of studies that the QWERTY keyboard is actually a very ineffective way to type, but everybody's been trained on it for decades. And so changing to a more efficient, more usable system is going to, you've got this hurdle of convection to overcome. You know, so while it may not be the best, it is the most widely used and the most widely understood. And there are a lot of user interface design principles that fall into that category as well. Amazon has, um, they are very responsible for the use of tabs in user interface design. You know, and a lot of people would follow what Amazon was doing in their UI design and just copy it because they figured, hey, everybody is shopping at Amazon and Amazon has taken the time to train people on how to use this user interface concept. So why don't we just borrow it? And there was really no study done to say, hey, is this effective or not? It's like, well, it kind of didn't matter at that point. <laughs> right. And plus, if you're, if you're a small shop, uh, then you're like, well, how much money can we afford to do user usability exactly. testing and <laughs> exactly exactly and, and so, know, if, and so like, if you pick if you pick up what's being you know what are the big guys doing and it is, does it work for them and how can i apply this to meet my need you kind of don't have to do usability testing you know that it's a convention that's out there that people understand and that they will immediately recognize when you if you employ it the proper way and you talk a little bit about that in your presentation where you talked about usability and uh, user analysis, basically going out there and, and asking people, or not asking, but presenting sort of the, your UI in front of them and asking them to interact with it. Now, one, one concept that you mentioned was uh, the paper prototype. Yes, I got a lot of feedback on that too, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> What was it? It was ranging from, I think that's a great idea to, that's ridiculous. I would never use paper prototypes. <laughs> but it still is, um, you know, it, it, just in, in design in general. I mean, it's a good design principle, whether it's user interface design, whether it's web design, whether it's uh, print design, you know, mocking things up, trying ideas very quickly, very low tech, you know, with paper and pencil help you, you know, it helps you come up with a lot of ideas quickly. Um, and that's, that's a carryover from design school. I studied graphic design in Germany and everybody who studied design in a design institution learns to, you do thumbnails, you do lots of them because the concept behind that is your first ideas are usually not that great. They're usually obvious ideas. It's usually, you know, the first solution that comes to your head is never the best one. And the only way to get rid of that is to get those out of your system by doing multiple concepts, multiple thumbnails, you know, put down as much, as many design iterations, ideas as you can, as quickly as you can, and get those out of the way. And now that you've sort of purged your mind of the obvious now you can start working on the not so obvious. So that's that's from the design school. Now, carrying that into user interface design, I don't think that's the same principle that we're trying to apply here, but it is a, well, what is the best arrangement of these elements? What is the best hierarchical arrangement of these elements, you know, to put into the interface? What does the user want to do first? You know, where do we put that element? What is the most important thing? Where do we put that? Would it work better on the left? Would it work better on the right? Would it work be better on the top? Sometimes it might work better on the bottom. You never know until you work it out, play around with some paper, paper prototypes and actually put them in front of people. 
And this is a really low-tech way to do usability testing. You know, you can mock up some paper prototypes and you could hand it to somebody who doesn't know anything about your product and ask them some leading questions. You know, if you if I asked you to do this function, how would you do it and see what they do with your paper prototype? And you can immediately get feedback that way. It's it's not incredibly scientific, but if you don't have the, you know, hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to spend on an outside usability firm, it's a great way to just get some immediate feedback without having to spend a lot of time programming, building user interfaces. You know, you can waste a lot of time doing the coding, doing the programming, only to find that it's not working. And then you have to go back and redo all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea because it lo- allows you to iterate quickly. Um, one complaint that, well, one pe- something that people were mentioning was that, well, LabVIEW itself is kind of like a prototyping environment where you can, you know, drop user interface elements on the front panel and so on and so forth. But um, the problem with that, in my opinion, is that whether you like it or not, eventually, I mean, you, you become committed to that uh, stuff that you created, that thing that you created, because it's, you know, a piece of software on, on your computer, you've spent a few minutes doing it, and it's, it's slower in the iteration process, even though LabVIEW itself is fast, it's not as fast as drawing something on a piece of paper. Um, and also, you're not committed to that. You can throw that in the in the trash. Uh, and I think the paper prototype is is a better approach to it. Well, I agree, and you hit it right on the head that because it it looks like a finished product, they tend to not be as critical on evaluating it because they've committed time and energy into placing those elements. And and yeah, in LabVIEW, you can just take the front panel elements and recompose them fairly quickly. But because it looks real and it looks finished, your your ability to and your penchant to just be satisfied with it faster is is really high. Whereas if it's paper prototype, you're not really invested in it and you'll try more variations faster. And also the the crudeness of the paper prototype actually it's it is its advantage because the person that's looking at it doesn't doesn't assume anything. I mean, when they see a, a button that's drawn by hand, they know it's not going to look like that. But they know that, hey, in this corner, there's going to be a button. We don't know how it looks like right now, but there's going to be a button there. Or there's going to be some interface element there. Whereas if you do it in the in LabVIEW and you use a gray button and the, the person's like, well, uh, automatically assume, like they get a different feel for the UI if they actually see the real button there. Right. Um, and they make some assumptions that, oh, okay, that's how the button's going to look like. Well, and then they're less likely to get caught up in the details. Right, right. I mean, no, you know, no offense to all the engineers that are listening to this, but engineers do tend to get caught up in the details very quickly. That's what engineers do. They're they're paid to do that. And with a paper prototype, there really aren't details. So they're not going to focus on that word or that particular button style or that particular um, graph style. But whether is that the right place for the graph? Is that the right place for the button? And, you know, is that the right composition? Once you are actually laying things out in LabVIEW, now you're going to start being more critical about the individual elements rather than the higher level concept. And so that's the other reason to stick to to paper is that you don't get distracted by the details. You know, the details will come later and there is a time to evaluate and judge the details, but that's as the piece is being built, not as you're still trying to come up with the right composition and the right designs. Yeah. When my colleagues and I are discussing a design and someone goes into the details, we say, you know, 
we're getting into the weeds right now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We don't want exactly. to get into the weeds. Now, one uh, term you mentioned, which uh, I actually heard for the first time, um, was uh, tough. Uh, was tough eyes your interface? Tufty eyes. Yeah. yeah Tufty eyes. <laughs> And I think those of us who are fans of Edward Tufte, I think we just sort of made up that word. Um, and that's, you know, so Edward Tufte is a, he is an information architect uh, bar none. His, his whole focus is on uh, data visualization. He's got quite a few books out and for good design and good information uh, education. Anything by Edward Tufte is just a phenomenal read and is highly valuable. I think I have, he just came out with a new book, so I don't have all of his books, um, but I've got the um, the three most iconic. And the, the concepts that uh, Edward Tufte brings is, it's very simple. It's focus on the data. What are the important elements of data or information that really need to be highlighted and let everything else just sort of fall to the background. So often we see, um, this should actually be like a, a visual podcast, not an audio <laughs> podcast, but uh, so often we see people designing things with, or, you know, charts or information graphics. We'll take the NSA uh, PowerPoint, for example. There's just a lot of stuff in that presentation that doesn't need to be there to communicate the real information. Uh, we call it chart junk, you know, if you have a graph, if you have a table, and the lines of the table are so heavy and so thick that the first level of information that your eye sees is all of the lines, you lose the data that's contained in the table. So to tuftyize it would simply be to remove, if you can remove the lines of a table and let the information create sort of the visual structure, the horizontal and the vertical lines, if that can be created purely with the information, that's beautiful. You know, if your eye can still follow the horizontals and the verticals purely by looking at the information, then you're done. If you still need those lines to help guide the eye, using the lightest, thinnest lines that you possibly can so that they don't get in the way of the information. You want the words to come out in front not the structure that's holding the words. So that, that sort of tuftyization in its simplest form. Well, and a good way for people to see that is to just Google, you know, NSA PowerPoint. Um, because like I said, uh, another information designer took their PowerPoint presentation and redesigned it. And so it shows a good before and after of how to really streamline what was just a hot mess of information and streamline it to what are the bare essentials of information that they really need to communicate and then focus on those and let everything else just sort of disappear. Well, hopefully a lot of people will take note of that for the upcoming NI week because there's going to be a lot of PowerPoint presentations there. <laughs> there will be. And um, some of them will be nice and some of them um, won't. <laughs> I, yeah, there are quite a few that I've seen where there's just a ton of information on slides, especially worse when the presenter is reading everything on that slide. <laughs> and and PowerPoint's a whole other topic of uh, good information design because my my philosophy on PowerPoint is if I have a lot of information on that slide, where are the eyes of your audience? They're on the slide. They're reading the slide, and and guess what? They're not paying attention to you. And so when I do presentations, I try to have as minimal, maybe one word, maybe two words and imagery so that 
the information behind me is supporting what I'm talking about, but they're going to have to look at me and listen to me to get the majority of the information. Right, because then they just read everything on the slide and they're like, well, what do I need you for? I'll just exactly. read, I'll just, just sit there and I'll, I'll just read the slide. <laughs> exactly, or I'll just email it to you and I don't even have to show up for the presentation. <laughs> exactly. Um, the LabVIEW community, uh, as you probably got feedback from at the CLA Summit, has this, um, I guess, complaint that, you know, LabVIEW doesn't, the, the, the tools that we have as LabVIEW developers do, don't have the power, they don't reflect sort of the, uh, the current state of what users expect from the user interface uh, to be able to do. And I guess you heard that a little bit loud and clear when you were uh, at the CLA Summit. <laughs> And uh, so did and so did the LabVIEW project managers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, was that something you expected? I mean, like when they asked you, you know, let's let you're going to do a presentation to these people, and then we start, you know, attacking some people about you know what we want and all that stuff. Did, is that kind of what you expected to see? <laughs> um, you know, I didn't I didn't know what to expect for that. Um, I knew the audience that I'd be talking to, and I and I work with a lot of engineers here. So and and I understand LabVIEW. I'm not an engineer. I don't pretend to be one. I don't play one on TV, but I do understand the power of LabVIEW and all of the different types of engineers and types of you know disciplines that it has to represent. And the, it is a challenge because it serves such a broad audience. It's hard to focus it in on one particular set of users' needs. Right. Whereas somebody is heavily involved in building the front panels because they're building a product that they're going to deploy and sell to their own customer and it's heavily reliant on that front panel, they're going to have much more feedback and input about the front panels and what they can and can't do than a researcher who is really just using LabVIEW for the power behind it to connect to multiple um hardware devices and gather all the data and synchronize, you know, all those bits and pieces that he's trying to, you know, organize. He really, he really doesn't care as much about the front panel as all the other power that LabVIEW provides. And so it's hard for a company like National Instruments to meet everybody's need. And I get that. Uh, we use Oracle a lot. And Oracle is a big, ugly, powerful beast, and it's a great tool set. But if you try to design a user interface with it, it's kind of a beast. And you know when something has been developed you know, with the Oracle out-of-the-box tools because it's just really ugly. Now, I'm not saying LabVIEW is ugly. I, I can't say that. <laughs> but I do understand the problems that you know, a lot of the you know, LabVIEW super users are running into with the limitations on some of the UI components. And I know that the LabVIEW team, the R&D team, they hear that loud and clear and they are doing what they can. Um, you know, there are hints to some of the next generation capabilities of LabVIEW coming out. And, and like I said, we now have a team of uh, designers that are purely focusing on the LabVIEW interface. Now, that's mostly the block diagrams. I'm not, I'm not sure what work is being done on the, uh, the front panel designs, but no, it wasn't surprising to hear that because a lot of these guys are making their living selling, you know, selling products that utilize the front panels to their, to their end users. And I've also seen what people can do when they go into LabVIEW and customize it. Um, I know, I, you know, unfortunately, I threw out the silver controls there as an example, but I think they are a, a vast improvement over what was the out-of-the-box front panels that 
you know, come with LabVIEW standard. But it just shows that these things can be done. You have to invest a little bit of time and energy into changing some of those UI components, but it can be done. What I might do, I've been thinking about doing, because I'm going to be giving uh, a follow-up presentation at NI Week, you know, a similar topic for UI. And what I'm thinking about doing is actually installing LabVIEW on my machine and building a front panel and redesigning it based on the functions that are already in LabVIEW and seeing if I can apply some of my own principles to a user interface, you know, a typical user interface that somebody would build using LabVIEW. So that'll, that'll be my challenge between now and August is to uh, sort of drink some of my own champagne and see what I can do using LabVIEW and using the tools built into LabVIEW. There won't be any code behind it because I'm not a, I'm not a programmer, but it'll, it'll, all be, uh, it'll all be smoke and mirrors, but it should still be something that an average person would be able to accomplish using the LabVIEW front panels. Well, that, that would be interesting to see. Well, and now I can't, uh, because I've just said it and you're going to broadcast this, now I actually have to do it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's good uh, incentive. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, as you said, you know, you can't say that LabVIEW is ugly, but I can say it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't work for National Instruments, so I can, I can say that. But um, basically, the, what we have... Uh, currently is is limiting and I, I agree with a lot of what people said at the uh, the CLA summit I guess the uh, the biggest limitation is that we can't uh, follow the trends that are happening right now and as we talked earlier about you know skeuomorphism versus flat um, kind of thing that uh, and also the uh, the sliding effect and and the, the come some those type of things that we can't easily do that without a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of programming, a lot of customization. And, right. you know, we tend to focus on things that bring us revenue. And that is, you know, this system must, you know, test this device and give me the results. As long as we can accomplish that in the quickest quickest amount of time, um, we kind of put the basics on the front panel and then move on. And it's hard for us to sell to our customers time and materials and effort spent on doing something that is, you know, designing a user interface or customizing the uh, the user interface and spending in, uh, money on that when it doesn't sort of immediately um, have an impact on the, the test or the results that the, that the customer wants. So we have to kind of balance that. And if LabVIEW has the tools that make that part easier, so we don't have to spend too much time on that and still present a very good interface, then uh, we try to do that. Um, perhaps maybe we're focusing too much on you know, the, the tools themselves and not so much on the design. Because as you said, you can create a good design without coding. And that's kind of what you said that you were trying to, that you will try to show us at an iWeek. So we'll have to see about that. Exactly. And, and as I said, LabVIEW is a very, very powerful tool. I mean, there's so many things that people are doing with it around the world. You know, building, building the front panel is just one component of it. And for most people, the out-of-the-box, the system-level tools that it provides are more than sufficient. Yeah, and I think, you know, because the uh, CLAs, you guys tend to be a little bit more on the high end and a little bit more demanding. I was surprised to find out that you, because one, one of the elements that came up was that they wanted more um, uh, like web-based interface components. You know, and I asked the question, I'm like, well, how many of you are actually building websites with this? And it's quite a few of them are. You know, they're building, they're building a web component to whatever system they're building. And so 
or in the ribbon, you know, a lot of them needed like the Microsoft ribbon type of element. I said, well, how many of you are actually building applications? And quite a few of you are. But I think it is that, you know, that elite group of people that you have a higher level of need than the average LabVIEW user. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that I know the LabVIEW team has to focus on what is the broad need? You know, how do we, how do we meet the masses first? And now what can we go and do to help, you know, the, uh, the super users? So, and, and like I said, they, they heard you loud and clear. Well, Joe, uh, I think we've uh, spent a lot of time and it was a, it was a great discussion. It was, it was great to have you on the show. It was my pleasure to be here. Um, look forward to uh, seeing you at NI Week. Well, thanks again. All right. Well, it was good talking to you. And also thank you all for listening to this episode of the VI Shots podcast. You can give us feedback by sending us an email to feedback at vishots.com. You can also go on to our website and look up episode number 23 and respond with a comment on there. You can also follow us on Twitter at VI Shots and we're at facebook.com slash VI Shots. Thank you and bye for now.